0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org.
1: Good morning, good morning <coughs> dear Dharma brothers and sisters. Uh, it's really good to see you and uh, I hope everybody's enjoying this incredible weather. It's nice. it's nice to get to be up here to talk. Um, So this week, this coming week, Wednesday, we're going to have a ceremony. Uh, We're calling it Sajiki. I used to know it as Sagaki. I was going to ask Marco why we call it Sajiki. Do you know, Tim? Yeah,
2: because Gaki became a kind of slur for homeless people in Japan.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that's Impolite. interesting. Okay, so we're having a Sajiki ceremony. Uh, although, gosh, maybe that's not so bad that that's what we think of them as um, because, after all, Gakis weren't, weren't pretty beings by any means. Um, all right, Gakis and pratas; those are both uh, Sanskrit words that mean, well, now we translate it as hungry ghosts, but they were beings that were defined as uh, suffering from um greed, greed that could never be satisfied. And I, I'm pretty sure that was a pre Buddhist idea. I think it was something that could arouse out of the ancient cultures of India. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about why this uh, um why this ceremony is you know why we do it here in the United States? It seems like such a weird, foreign kind of a ceremony, with lots of noise and strange, um, kind of surreal kind of things. And I wanted to talk about the history of it, and then you know why? What does it mean to us? Why? Why do we? Why is it important? Uh, some Zen centers. Um, there's a Zen, Zen center. Sorry, a Zen center in. Uh, Dharma Rain, which is up in Portland, I think, that has a whole retreat around it. So, and they have a wonderful description of it too out on the web, which I borrowed some of my words from. Um, so it supposedly goes back to a fellow named Moggallana. How many people have ever heard of Mogalana or Moggallana? Okay. Yeah, a few people. Um, He was uh, actually a a life follower of the Buddha, and he was uh, very attached to his mother. He he loved her dearly, and she had uh, been so good to him, and she died. And he kept having dreams, these horrible dreams about his mother suffering in this place where she couldn't get any, she couldn't, she could get food, but she couldn't eat it. And she could get water, but it would turn to fire. And the food would turn to blood and even worse things. And so uh, his dreams were torturing him. And he talked to the Buddha about it. And the Buddha... Can, can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Um, so the Buddha, uh, in his wisdom and in his ability to be uh, teach skillful means, figure out what an individual needs to help him... Uh, suggested that he uh, Moggallana, uh, had uh, create a ceremony for his mother, and that he feed, he offer food that possibly she could eat. I don't know, um, to figure something out to feed her. And he, but he, the Buddha suggested that he do this ceremony along with the ceremony that the monks would do periodically, which is. I don't know what they called it back then, but it's something like our full moon ceremony, where they would all get together and do and uh, uh, repeat their vows and uh, take refuge and um, acknowledge their twisted karma. So, uh, so in conjunction with this, then this was important to the Buddha that he do this ceremony for his mother in conjunction with that ceremony, where he uh, uh, would uh, speak of his own. Uh, Twisted Karma, and uh, so I guess it was a pretty powerful ceremony, and he he was able to gain freedom for himself and for his mother. Well, I kind of read that. That's great. Wait a minute, his mother's dead. (laughs) Who benefited from this offering? You know. Um. Uh. So Mogalana was able to. Uh, find peace and he was able to find peace for the mother that was in his head so this, uh, so this ceremony I, I don't know much about how it went on during the time of Buddhism in India or if it was ever practiced or it was just something that was part of the lore but when Buddhism spread to China and Japan and other uh, eastern Asian countries these people those those uh, countries do a lot of ancestor worship It's really tied into their so you know like buddhism merged with the religions of those countries of those countries like Taoism and shintoism and so it went wild it went viral in china this ceremony it became, it, it became a, a really big deal every year and it was like it was like a big halloween party but it lasted it it lasted a while i mean Fifteen days, sometimes a whole month, or at least they would consider that during this time, which always happened in the seventh month of the lunar calendar, which is pretty much our July, um, that uh, the the they were welcoming back all of the the hungry ghosts, and which kind of took uh, kind of became their ancestors, basically. Their ancestors became hungry hungry ghosts, um, and so. Uh, during this time, or you know, maybe it was just one, one big uh, ceremony to offer them to to welcome them, and then they had a goodbye ceremony for them also. So to welcome them was this ceremony called sagaki, or we're calling it sujiki now. Um, so uh, during this ceremony, there'd be lots of. Entertainment. They would entertain the because you know, remember these are ghosts are all around. They're all around the, the village, you know, and the the people are they they keep their kids in during this time after dark because there's these ghosts, you know, everywhere. And uh, uh, this is probably you know much more a popular thing in the villages where people weren't super educated, but you know, but um, it it was obviously something that really benefited them doing this and. Uh, and bringing these allowing these inviting the, the their their hungry ghosts, their ancestors uh, to to be there to be there with them and to be able to eat they would leave altars around with food uh, and during the ceremony there'd be a big uh, the priest would sit in a chair in the middle of the room, which um Mako was going to be doing at our ceremony. The altar would not be the the altar was not to have any Buddhas on it or any Bodhisattvas it was it was uh, free of, of Buddha, so the our altar will be on this end of the room, uh, and um, I don't think Marcus, uh, the priest, would throw food up to the to the hungry ghosts. I, I don't think Marcus would do that. So, um, so it was a time to a time to become peaceful and to. Uh, with your feelings about your ancestors, any clinging that you have it was a time to let go of of that and um, and let go of your own greed. It was a time to let go of of the things you were clinging to. and so it was very uh, beneficial for the people that practiced it. And then just a little interesting thing. At the end of the period of time, when the, at the end of the visiting, the, the big, uh, the the people would make little boats out of paper or some kind of wood. And they'd put candles on them. And they'd float them in the water. And as they drifted away, eventually the candle would go out. And that was a symbol that the ancestor had gone back to the underworld, where he came from. so. Um, Uh, We're not going to do that part of the ceremony. Mm -hmm. I have been to one of those ceremonies. It's called Oban. Oban, when they um, float the boats and uh, watch the candles go out. Um, So uh, China was the uh, uh, beginning of calling these and Kretz is calling them ghosts because ghosts were a big part of the Chinese culture. So they came to be called hungry ghosts at, at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So these creatures are described in quite horrific terms. Um, they're, um, and they can be all kinds of people, like... You know, I so said it kind of got generalized into just all ancestors, but uh, at first the hungry ghosts were believed to be the people that had committed crimes, horrible crimes, um, murders, and you know, especially greedy things that they'd done. Uh, people who didn't feed monks became hungry ghosts. <laughs> and uh, very conveniently, this was always women, because uh, women took care of the food, so. Uh, women who didn't feed monks maybe out of anger with their husband for going up and leaving them without enough money to pay for the food, who knows what, but you know, it was always on the women <laughs> to feed the monks and some of them were a little bit angry um, people, and, and like people also that, uh, who and I think maybe is more the general description of ghosts is people that die of very violent deaths, you know, or in some way aren't settled like, like I, how many people have read Lincoln and the Bardo?
3: Yeah,
1: that's that's a wonderful book about uh, the bardo and, and, and its inhabitants. Um, uh, also, people that didn't have any, uh, dead people that didn't have any living relatives. I mean, think about it. Gosh, it's got to be really important to, in uh, a country that worships ancestors to always carry on your line, because you could be left high and dry with nobody to venerate you after you die. Uh, and so Those sad cases that didn 't have living relatives and and also those who had not been properly venerated by their by their um, their living people their living descendants uh, so uh, and imagine how those descendants felt that they a little guilty for not venerating their ancestors. this was a time when they could make up when they could heal those wounds and um, all right, but anyway, these anyway these these ghosts, whoever they are, whatever they've done, um, are portrayed as very horrible. Um, you know, there's uh, you know words like feces and um, cadavers and uh, putrefaction and um, you know words like that that you read when you read the descriptions of them. They actually you know, some of them ate feces. And it's, it's very it's very unattractive and. Um, I kept wondering. I wonder why? Why would they be portrayed as so so horrible, so uh, and the suffering? I mean, they were suffering horribly. Why would it be so exaggerated? That uh, so distasteful? I, I didn't. I kind of had to think about that for a little while. I think it was because it was to arouse our compassion. To arouse compassion for these, you know, creatures that were just, um, you know, in horrible, horrible, horrible shape, and they couldn't, they couldn't take anything in, so they had big distended bellies, and their mouths were like, the size of a needle, sewing needle, hole. So. So I think at the heart of it, that is what this ceremony is about. It's about compassion. It's about having compassion for these suffering beings. But there's a kind of a twist because it's us that are the suffering beings, just like Moggallala was suffering so much thinking about his mother. But it was really his suffering that was that was going on he was the living being that had this body and thus can suffer Um, and so this festival is all about compassion for the hungry ghosts and compassion for ourselves and the hungry ghosts that are in every one of us Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit then about um, this Thing we call greed, and uh, and why? Well, just look into it a little bit. So I, I used two sources for this part of my talk. i talk. I used uh, "Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism," and David Loy. David Loy is the most eloquent writer I know that can talk about lack, lack, lack. Something we all suffer from, and. the The book that I used was that one. I never can remember the title. It's uh, Money, Sex, War, and Karma. (laughs) (laughs) Money, Sex, War, and Karma. I guess that just about says it all. (laughs) So um, Drunkarampashi said something pretty pithy and interesting and uh, food for thought. He said, The torture of the hungry ghost is not so much the pain of not finding what he wants, Rather, it is the insatiable hunger itself which causes the pain." It's kind of interesting, and it seems pretty true. Now, of course, oh, when I'm talking about wants, these are egotistical wants, not the wants we have for our family to be happy or for ourselves to have an interesting life. Those aren't, those aren't these. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about egoistic wants, egoistic desires. Um, and I just wondered, uh, in saying this, that the wanting of things—that uh, the—is not so much the pain of not finding what he wants, rather it's the insatiable hunger itself that causes the pain. Uh, and then shortly after that, in his book, he uses a word around this, which is fascination. He talks about this fascination with with wanting things, or this that the wanting itself is a kind of a fascination, which. Um, kind of tune me into the fact that he's talking about wanting things and wanting things purely for the excitement that it gives us because i don't know about your wanting things but uh, i think what he's saying is the wanting of things is actually more interesting than the having of things and um uh, I see nods, heads nodding, so I guess that must be something that strikes a little bit at the truth, that um, uh, it's it's exciting to want things. How many times I think in my life I've, I've wanted something desperately. I mean, it was strong. And then when I had a chance maybe to get it, I didn't even do it. I, I remember when I was about 30, I put my job and went back to school, and Oh, I remember really, really wanting a good stereo. Oh, I wanted it. And I was poor because I was living on savings and I hadn't been working that long, so I didn't have a lot of savings. And I was living on savings. And oh, I wanted a stereo so bad. And I wanted a grand piano. <laughs> well, I did get the stereo, but you know, I never got a grand piano. Even though you know, few, you know, since I worked as a software developer, I could have afforded one. I wasn't, but you know, I came up with all kinds of excuses not to get one. You know, it was, took up too much room, too hard to move. You know, all kinds of things. You know, I don't know what that was about, but I desperately wanted one, and that was that was exciting, and it was. Um, uh, and I, you know, I don't know what about you guys. Um, uh, do you sometimes think, can you think of ego-driven ones that you have that either maybe maybe they got achieved, maybe you got what you wanted, but, you know, it wasn't really that that great. Um, usually it usually becomes background. It becomes what? It loses its novelty and becomes background. Then it becomes background, yeah. yeah. I remember when I was working, I wanted desperately, because it seemed like at my company, as maybe at many companies, managers got treated better than, you know, the low-level people that did the work, and I was, I wanted to be a manager, really bad. and I actually got to be a manager, and I hated it. <laughs> 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 it only lasted a couple of years. Uh, so, um, yeah, and and our and our desires for a lot of times our desires are for things like credit or or merit. We want people to recognize us for who we are, but sometimes. Um, we get recognized that, well, it's either not enough, or maybe they just really don't quite understand what we really did, you know? We, anyway, we can't a lot of times take it in. We can't take in uh, the, the gratefulness that somebody may show us, even though we so desperately want it. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure nobody in here is like this, but you probably know some people that complain a lot. <laughs> They complain a lot, and then when things, you know, kind of, their, their complaint is met, they either complain about the opposite, or they find something else to complain about. Um, kind of, it's kind of the, the same thing, that uh, it's, the, it's the complaining, and it's the wanting of things that keep us entertained. Um, so why, why do we do this rather foolish thing? Why do we spend so much time wanting something we don't have or that we think we want, or complaining about the way things are, but not really doing anything to change them and not really appreciating it when they are changed? Um, why do we do this? Well, it's kind of um, a basic part of our, our lack and our la- where's our lack? Come from our feeling of lack. People look like they knew what I was talking about when I said lack. People look like, yeah, lack. I've got some of that. Uh, So where's (laughs) that come from? It's really very basic. It's very much a part of the whole human condition. Um, And that's that. It it comes from that truth. The truth that it's you know it's our basic, our basic. Um, the truth of the fact that we don't really have a solid self that we're uh, we were kind of uh, made-up people you know Marco talked last week about uh, our our Lo-Jean class that we have on Thursday nights for this practice period and and and, on, and the one that's the practice with the 59 slogans and one of the slogans that she talked about last week was the one about uh, life is, is, is think of think of life think of the dharmas as a dream um that um and we kind of dream ourselves into existence is that right people do people feel that but yeah it's true that we dream ourselves into existence we're taught from a very early age that we are a uh, a separate person, and we have a name, and we have a personality, and we have uh, talents, and we have, you know, we identify with ourselves ourselves as somebody who's uh, you know, smart, maybe, or maybe somebody that's not smart, or somebody that's um, uh, nice, or somebody that's maybe a grouch. Anyway, we identify ourselves, and we have this, and we, we um, live with this day in and day out. That's how we get along we've got ourselves but there's inklings right there's inklings that that little, little hints every once in a while we have that I am not who I think I am maybe somebody will say something to us that kind of flies in the face of who we think we are and uh, hey, you're not so great at that. Um, there's a lot of people who can do that a whole lot better than you, or you know, or just <laughs> something that doesn't really match up with our own understanding of ourselves, and it's painful. It's 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 incredibly painful. Um, and so, um, but we have these inklings. We have these inklings that uh, we're not quite as uh, solid as we seem, and. I don't know about you guys. How many inklings you've had? I love that word, inklings. <laughs> there was some book about four or five years ago that talked about inklings as creatures. I, of it. I was a bestseller, but and I thought oh, that's wonderful, inklings—the little inklings running around like ants or something. Anyway, we have inklings, and uh, and sometimes it gets. Worse than just inklings. I mean, sometimes we really have to grapple with this feeling of uh, lack, of, of lack of, of, of being here. It's, uh, it's kind of a fear of, of death, really, because death, we're not here, and that's why I might be dead. I could be dead. No, I can't be. I've got to carry on this big delusion that I am somebody to be reckoned with. And... Uh, the world needs to know that I'm very much alive, and you know, I'm gonna go on, and I'm gonna want things, and I'm gonna, um, you know, complain about things, and I'm gonna, you know, keep keep it all going, and uh, so we, so we keep busy. So why do we have to be so goddamn busy? All the
3: time? <laughs> <laughs> it keeps the inklings away. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, in my busyness, I cleaned out one of my closets and came across a bunch of old baby pictures and of me. And if you want to practice a dreamlike state, you look at yourself and you go, "Where is that person?" That <laughs> and it's yeah. like, "Whoa!" Yeah. And you right. try to bring your memory back to what that person was feeling at that particular. It's just all a dream yeah, yeah yeah that whole idea all we've got is memories and it's pretty insubstantial, really. Thanks. Yeah right I think about what I was like at 20 and 30 and 40. I'm not any of those people anymore. Um, so um, so anyway the, this that this is a very this is something we share with everybody. It's nothing to be ashamed of it's something to embrace actually. And that's what this ceremony is all about: is is embracing our 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 humanity, embracing our um, you know our greedy little selves, and, 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 <laughs>
3: and loving them.
1: <laughs> and somehow, you know, this greed does by having it. You know, it gives us something to work with, so that we can uh, we can get free from it. And um, so we don't want to like. Like push it away or make it an exile, as they say in internal family systems. We don't want to um, uh, just, you know, we we kind of want to work with this this greedy self and um, you know just see what see what it's all about, see what's going on behind it, and and sit still and sit still with this. Um, well, one thing he called, I didn't use his term, he, used, he calls this the hole at our core, the hole. So we're going to sit with our hole, as terrifying as it might be, to sit with it and, um, and get, get to know it and get to uh, accept it and get to eventually be free enough that we can actually realize the joy that is the hole at our core. It seems kind of far fetched sometimes that there could actually be joy there. But uh, but I do believe there is, in, uh the you know. so we keep very busy avoiding the hole. We try to fill it with stuff and we, we with desires and with um, noise and. But while we're doing that, and you know, and you know, many people, uh, it's probably not so much a problem for the people in here. But many people don't come to a place like this to to deal with their their feeling of lack. They just, well, they, they just become more and more um, desirous of things and keep very busy with that, maybe their whole lives. Maybe they never, never touch, never allow themselves to follow an inkling. Um, and, and maybe they don't even think that they're starving because they don't know what it feels like to be free of, to be free of that. They don't know what it's like to have just five minutes of, of a peaceful mind. But once you've had that experience of having a peaceful mind, then you know. You know, you recognize this thing that you could call fascination or you could call passion or you could call uh, other good, you know, people, I'm a passionate person, you know. Uh, but <laughs> a lot of times it's just a person who has, mm-hmm. you know, wants a whole lot of things and their life is kind of exciting because they want so many things. <laughs> and. It's not all bad. I don't want to make it sound like it's all bad to one thing. It's even ego, it's what we do. It's a, it's a human thing. And uh, I don't want to make it out to be uh, something totally to throw away. But recognizing what's happening is very important. Backing off from a little bit is good. Um, and just letting, even just letting it go a little bit at a time can be very helpful and bring a little bit of peace and had us a little bit more into a joyful um, direction. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about money, because that was one of the chapters in David Loy's book, and I thought he expressed uh, it especially articulately. Um, So the place, that's money, that's the place we go, especially in our culture and in uh, European cultures but especially maybe in the United States maybe more so than most other countries even we take our lack to uh, a place where we where where there's money, we think in terms of of, and and I'm saying we I mean I'm not sure too many people in this room are too wrapped up with money but uh, maybe you have been in the past and maybe you still are, you know um, um so one of the things that called that Lloyd called money is he called it a reality symbol. So people feel like the more money they have, the more real they should feel, right? So and money is so tempting because, it's uh, it's so tangible it's something you can hold on to and it's something that is kind of beyond um, uh, it, it doesn't get destroyed over time so it's it's a very uh, it's kind of outside of the uh, temporariness of, of most everything else money seems very very solid so it's very tempting to, to go there and um, but you know it's a strange concept that's what Dave said, he said, it has no, it has no value. I mean, money has no value in itself, and it, it's, it's, but yet, it's the most valuable thing in the world, because we as a collective, you know, collective, a collective, of you know, all all beings have decided that money is valuable. So it's just, it's a made-up thing. Uh, it's maybe the biggest dream, I don't know. Um, so... He says, it's an institutionalized dream that everyone is having at once. Mm -hmm. So it should be a means to an end, but for many people, it becomes the end in itself. So uh, um, the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer said this. He said, money is an abstract happiness. Uh So someone who is no longer capable of concrete happiness sets his whole heart on money. I'm sure... You know, people that have done this, or do are doing this, are living the life of uh, setting their hearts on money. Money becomes frozen desire. It's not desire for anything in particular, but it's a symbol of desire in general. So there's that desire that we all um, want to to have to make us excited about living. Mm. So this is a, a quote from Lloyd. Money is not a thing, but a process. Perhaps it's best understood as an energy that is not really mine or yours. Those who understand that it is an empty, socially constructed symbol can use it wisely and compassionately to reduce the world's suffering. Those who use it to become more real end up by being used by it. Their alienated sense of self clutching a bank blank check a promise for note that can never be cash. Well, I thought about myself and money. And um, so I'm going to make a confession that back when I was in my 30s and 40s, um, you know, I worked in the corporate world and I was a software developer and uh, I made pretty good money. And I actually spent most of my time believing that my worth was how much I made. And uh, I can believe, I mean, I can remember, uh, you know, just thinking, well, uh, I, I sure hope I get a raise. I really want a raise. But I knew I didn't need the money. I just knew that if I made more money, I was more valuable somehow. And I was so caught up in my work world and only being around people that were like me that I had a big revelation when I was 40, 40 years old. Well, I came to practice at 42, so that's really when I started growing up. But I was 40 years old, and I volunteered for Habitat for Humanity, and they sent me over to East Austin to interview people that wanted a house. And I was so blown away by the people that I met over there. I couldn't believe it. They were such good people. They were kind, and they were fun, and they were smart. And they were, uh, and I just said, wow. Um, It was just, it was just very, uh, it just was very eye-opening. It's sort of hard to believe I was so old in life before I I saw this, but it kind of just knocked away all my feelings that somehow what you make is, and these people were poor, (laughs) I've mentioned that, but they They had all these great qualities, and um, so... You know, that was my little little realization that um, uh, the little, the little um, what would you call it, the little cave that I've been living in all these years. But, you know, I realized when I um, thought about the, this this week that that did something for me. It helps me understand people that are like that and haven't gotten out of that little cave. Um, you know, who define... And there's lots of those people around. So it it, it does... I, I guess I do have a kind of an understanding how that can happen.
0: Pat, um, That yeah. <clears throat> reminds me of a story I heard. You know, the guy who did the BP settlements. Uh, he's a master or something or other. He decides who gets what. Uh, you mean he, oil
1: spills? Who? The oil spills? You said BP? Yeah, the oil oh. spills.
0: He's called in when there are disasters and he uh, negotiates settlement like, you get this much, you get that much. Apparently, he was called into a Wall Street firm uh, after the financial crash. And this firm was involved in the derivatives that went thermonuclear and blew up the economy. And um, he said, people don't understand this, but when I went to this guy and I said, we're going to have to take away some of your money. Your bonus is going to have to be taken away. He said, you'll keep your base salary, the $100 million base state. I, I don't want to scare you. But this is the hard facts of life. The $80 million bonus, that is gone, my friend. And he says, you can't. You cannot do that to me. My entire sense of being in the world is dependent on that number. And I did it. And it's mine, and you cannot take it. Wow. It wow. would be like killing me.
1: Wow. Wow. It was a powerful... He actually said this. Uh, pardon me? He actually said this. Well, this and was got...
0: the, the, the story that the master negotiator told. Oh, he said, uh-huh. you know, people think that well, when we stop the money from these people that, oh, well, they've got a lot of money. They won't even notice. What's the difference? Oh, no, it was
1: deeply painful yeah. to them. Yeah. So yeah. Cool so you can even have a little bit of compassion for, for the way this man felt.
0: There's one hungry ghost.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, they did take it away, I suppose.
0: Sadly, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Is he here? Is he here? <laughs> Maybe he came to. Some with his, his black, and, you know. I hope so. We can only hope so. Well,
0: maybe he woke
1: up, but I doubt it. <laughs> but the fact that he at least saw that was what was going on with him. Yeah. Mm. So, what time is it? Oh, I guess I guess I've come. All right, now just to go back to the original subject, which is the Hungry Ghost Festival. Uh, I don't know if I have anything new to say about it, uh, so we're going to invite all our ghosts to come. And uh, we're not such a big ancestor worshiping kind of culture, but you know, we also are also going um, to let go of, of people in our lives that have died and that um, we may be clinging to, or just um, but anyway. It's a t- time of um, of uh, feeling deep, deep, deep compassion for our own ghosts and for for those of others. Um, um, so, uh, okay. Are there? Uh, yes, yes, Maureen.
3: Um, I, uh, I mean, your talks, Pat, and this one. I mean, they're to me they're really brilliant and personal and. Um, I don't know. We like Thank boom. You. Yeah, Thank you. yeah. And so, on, on this, to make I always have to say, I always have to keep retelling myself like the story, like a combination lock. You know, throughout your talk, it's like, okay, ABC. And so, on this one, you don't even need to remember what the key pieces are for me. Oh. So, my ABC or combination lock on this is that um, it's like, okay, hungry ghost. Is um, want want is kind of just a part of our human nature. It's like it's from a lack, and it's also the excitement. And so, and it, but it's also a way to kind of keep us away from the realization the fear and the kind of existential like ho- holy shitness. <laughs> 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 you know, uh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, really, there's not. There's no one home, right? Really, what I am is there's no independent being, and whatever—not codependent—is co—whatever that thing is. Or dependent co-arising, <laughs> or co-arising dependent. Codependent arising. <from> <laughs> <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> or, you know, but but um, it's kind of it's a way to address that the nature of our reality is there's you know we are inter- interdependent. There's not like some fixed thing at the center. That's me, and that's the one that wants to make the money, and that whatever the deal is, right? Yeah. But that's kind of what I got out of what you're saying, which is, to me, hugely powerful.
1: Wow, wow! I like your idea of using a
3: yeah,
1: a, lock, oh. a lock thing. Yeah. you thing. <laughs>
3: yeah,
1: that's what I wanted to say. I guess, I guess, yeah, good. <laughs> So I guess it's kind of like the Four Noble Truths, that there is a cause of suffering. That's our cause of suffering right there. I mean, well, that and those things. Anybody else?
2: Oh, I was um, reading the book, we're doing the Lojong training, and mm -hmm. in the book uh, by Changyuan Trungpa, he's cultivating uh, Passion, I forget what it was called. Um, training yeah, the mind. Training the mind, yeah. uh, He talks about the, in Tibet, there are, there's also this feeding the ghosts or feeding the demons tradition or practice, and that it's a fairly common one. And he talks about it in terms of like, the ghosts are these things that come along that we're not even aware of, that are, we don't see them, they just sort of take possession of us in a way. Mm-hmm. Kind of like our neurosis. Yeah. Like things right. that we, we right. don't know why, where do they come from? And um, but they and they are sort of insubstantial, and but they have like a spirit that takes over us, and I think that's how they traditionally were viewed, like these spirits that just take over you. Mm-hmm. And I think in my experience, I look at my at my karma, and I say, sometimes I want to say, why did I do that? What spirit possessed me? What what drove me? And it is like this this underneath it all, there's just like this lack, this under this this ignorance about the fundamental understanding of what drove that and it, it does become the spirit mm-hmm. possessing me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What and I have to go back and look at that what you know my thought uh, you know and it keeps happening over and over again these yeah. great things that I looking
1: do. at it right in the eye that's important looking at what, but there's what, a what it's kind doing of, to you.
2: But it seems like there's a necessity of having uh, empathy and saying this is actually this happens to me well, a lot these things that sort of mm-hmm. take over my behavior. Yeah. And I have to sort of feel compassion for not knowing exactly what it is that's taking over this,
1: what's, what's taking over my life. Yeah. But being it's aware of it is really important. Okay. Being aware of it, yeah. yeah. And, and, and being aware it's happening to everybody. Right? I mean, we're all. not alone in this. Other we're not alone and other people too. can yeah. help us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah picturing this little spirit clinging like little ghosty things, yeah, a little you know, potty. stuck on me like like that white stuff there,
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: which you shouldn't put outside, by the way, because birds get caught in, oh. Oh. just in case, yeah, did you put them outside? Yeah. Just like a picture of a great horned owl caught in. Oh. Oh, okay. yeah. Anyway, so yeah. Yeah, just like a great horned owl, we get caught and stuck in those 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 yeah. I just ordered. I just got that book yesterday. That Trump book. It looks really good. I, I you know, uh, it's still in print after all these years. Amazing. Uh, okay. Well, thank you, thank you for mm-hmm. listening to me.